Hey guys, welcome back to the Plant-Based Body Podcast. My name is Steph Sanzaro and I am a health and wellness advocate with a passion for talking to people about the things that really matter. And in today's episode, I am joined by a guest that talks so openly and so bravely about mental health and binge eating and body image issues. And we talk about how we can triumph over those things. We go through calorie counting to excessive exercise and to sustainable exercise and nutrition. We dabble with plant-based health and fitness and I honestly think that this episode has so much to teach you all. So without further ado, please welcome Matt Zapala. Matt, thank you so much for being here today with me on the Plant-Based Body Podcast. I'm really excited to have you here and it's nice that we're on different sides of the table this time and this time we're going to be talking about you, so welcome. Steph, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's, a, it's different being on the opposite end of, of the microphone, but I'm looking forward to it. Good. Well, I'm not going to ask you too many hard questions, but we might hit some nitty gritty at some stages. Um, look, I would love for you to first start off by telling us a little bit about like your upbringing and you know, where you're from and just start us right back at the beginning. Yeah, cool. So um, I'm a Melbourne boy. I know that's your base over in Geelong. So for all of your listeners over in Geelong, I was grow, grew up in Melbourne in a suburb called Airport West. Um, sport was really the centre of my childhood, to be perfectly honest. I was always playing footy. I love cricket, very passionate about that. So I always had a cricket bat in my hand and, yeah, was always outdoors at any chance that I could actually get, which was really good. Um, have an older brother and an older sister who, yeah, were really my rocks through my childhood as well. So we always play play sport and play fight and do all the boy things with my brother and then um, get down to some serious emotional chats with my sister, which was really good. So having that that balance was, um, was great to have through my childhood. Yeah, absolutely. That would have been awesome to have a little bit of the masculine side and then also a little bit of the feminine side as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think it sort of enabled me to see both you know, both ends of the spectrum, for lack of a better term, you know, based on stereotypes, boys are more hard hitting and, you know, don't really show their emotions. And whereas girls are more, you know, open to showing emotions and open to communicating. So I think having that during my upbringing enabled me to, yeah, get both ends of the spectrum and have a, have a bit of both and, and be tough and resilient when I needed to be, but then um, be able to communicate and share emotions when, when I needed to be as well. That's so important, I think. Definitely in this day and age, there is that stereotype behind what a masculine man has to be. And I'm so glad that you've sort of debunked that and you've taken both and made the best of it. Yeah, definitely. And I think that um, in terms of like the masculinity that you touched on before as a male, it's sort of gaining some momentum that, you know, a stereotype for a man isn't to just be a tradie and hide their emotions. It's actually to talk about your emotions and to to have someone that you can you can trust and, and let everything off your shoulders. I think it's so important in particular. Um, a lot of, like the stereotype, like we said before, was for males to, you know, bottle up their emotions and then it would come out in other ways and, and often through alcohol and, and drugs and stuff like that where they would deal with their emotions. So, yeah, I think it's gaining a lot of momentum, which is really important in this day and age. It is really important and I'm really glad that you've mentioned it because I'd really like to talk about 
that side of your life as well and you know your your mental health and how that sort of changed through you know your years in primary school through to high school and obviously to where you are today can you tell me a little bit about your life in those early years of school yeah so school was for me was the absolute breeze I loved it I was always you know trying to be the larrikin the class clown and um trying to be friends with everyone and basically my school life consisted of just banter so me and my mates would always you know hang crap on each other and then you know it was just a great great fun and I never really thought it could be harmful at all because I wasn't the type of person to be able to take insults on board and 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 like take it seriously it was always you know if I got insulted I'd just give it back twice as hard and it just turned into that and then there was you know often through primary school there was a lot of bullying going on as it is through all all schools and I think it really hit home for me when when I was taking you know taking the piss out of this this girl that we always used to have a relationship with we'd always used to have a banter relationship and then she sort of started breaking down after something that I said I can't remember what it was and that was a wake-up call for me to say that you know maybe my, my words and my actions do affect other people so I'm not going to lie and say that I stopped hanging hanging shit on people then and like I stopped having that larrikin relationship but I guess I was more aware of to what the things that I was saying and, and really weren't making it as personal as what I did and it was a big wake-up call for me to, to like I said before just to address that words can actually hurt people um like I mentioned before sport was always at the center of school I'd get there early and play sport um and I was quite overweight as a kid I was completely addicted to food which I didn't think was a bad thing then but looking looking back now I, I know that it was really really detrimental and and thinking back to um like the habits that I used to adopt through primary school and high school it was just like a mind blown that I used to go through each and every day doing that and thinking that it was normal um to answer your question about mental health that like I said before I didn't really take on board any insults or we always used to have a banter sort of relationship with my mates through primary school and then got to got to the end of grade six the start of year seven I think maybe the transition into being the top of the school in grade six going right down to the bottom of the school in year seven sort of made me develop a little bit of anxiety a little bit of social anxiety and then um, anxiety that stemmed through some family situations as well and um yeah, it got quite severe at one stage. It was to the point where I wouldn't be able to sleep at all without the light on at night and, and you know, I'd have to get dropped right to the front of school. So it would come up in, in really different, really weird, strange ways that my anxiety would come out. And it lasted for about a year, year and a half of, of me, you know, thinking that it was normal and, and just like living with that anxiety um, and then I finally, you know, sorry, just to backtrack a little bit, me and my mum would always have an open communication, so I'd always rely on her. I'm a little bit of a mummy's boy still, but, um, yeah, I'd always, you know, communicate with her really openly and, and talk to her about these things. And, yeah, we, we were working through it together and, and through that period of time and, and sort of I relied on her um, to help me through my anxiety. And then I was they started coming more frequently. I was getting them at school and obviously at school there was no way to be able to contact you know, mom and, and for her to be able to help me through that. So that's when I knew that I had to, you know, go see see someone and speak to someone about it. And yeah, so I, I think communicating with with someone about it, seeing professional help really helped me through it. And I was lucky it wasn't at the point where it was really severe that it was taking over my life, but it was starting to creep towards that 
that aspect where it was coming frequently more and more um, mm. throughout the day in different situations. So, yeah, I think speaking to someone really did help that. Um, yeah, amazing. Sort of for something bad. Yeah. Matt, do you mind me asking how old you were at this point? Yeah, for sure. So I was end of grade six, year seven, so 12, 13. Yeah, okay. So I think, like I said before, the transition from primary school to high school sort of brought that on and then um, it was coming in different ways like my mum was a smoker at the time and I, we were learning about health and all these things with with the body and how detrimental smoking can be and I would always have panic attacks like oh my god like why are you smoking yeah you know like you're putting all these toxins into your body and then I would always have panic attacks about mum passing away from it and yeah it would just stem from those sorts of things as well. Yeah, of course. It's a concern that, you know, something might happen to the people that we love that's definitely going to stem anxiety. And you should be really proud of yourself that you did get help at that time and, you know, that your mum was able to help you facilitate that. That's really important. Yeah, definitely. And I do thank her so much for, you know, putting up with with those those things in in that period of my life. I, I did really struggle and always look to her for support. And whenever, you know, she was... Facing, facing her own stresses throughout the day, she'd always make time to help me through my situation. And, yeah, I probably couldn't have gotten through it without her help. So, Yeah, that's so nice that you had that. You know, Matt, you mentioned before that in primary school you were quite overweight and that you relied upon food quite a lot. Do you think that that had any correlation with your anxiety at all? Um, I think it definitely did. I don't think that the anxiety stemmed from my addiction to food, but I definitely think it played a role that I would look to food to comfort me. Um, coming from a European background, food is the center of everything. So, you know, people come over and you have six courses just for a going away party and you end up, can't even wear your belt buckle home, like just things like that, where food is the center of attention. And um, I was consuming things like pizzas, pastas, schnitzels, cakes, soft drinks, lots. And, and like, I guess it takes a toll when you're over consuming those amounts of foods day in, day out. It, yeah, it definitely made me develop an, an addiction to those things. And I guess in those periods of time, I was looking towards those foods for comfort. Yeah, completely normal. It's a, you know, an emotional reaction to something and we find a comfort in eating food. It's just, yeah, so, so normal. And, you know, I'm curious to see how you found yourself climbing yourself out of that happen, you know, that pattern. So that really didn't happen until late high school, probably year nine, year 10, where I sort of decided that, you know, I can't really stay like this for forever. Um, just backtracking a little bit, my day would consist of just to paint the picture of what I would eat in a day through the end of primary school, start of high school. So I'd have like a huge bowl of cereal for with Fruit Loops or Neutral Grain before school. Um, and school was like maybe 100 metres from the milk bar. So I'd always pop into the milk bar before before school and, and grab like a, a Big M or a nice coffee, excuse me, on the way to school. And me and, me and the owner of the milk bar got to be good mates because I was in there every morning and night. <laughs> I can laugh about that now. Um, <laughs> for recess, I'd so this is like two hours later, I'd have like a lamington and two pieces of fruit. And then I'd often go to the canteen and just get some um, some toasted sandwiches or like a sunny boy in summer, things like that. Um, and I was completely addicted to food at that stage, clearly. And then for lunch, I would have leftovers from the night before. More often than not, like I said, it was pasta, schnitzels, um, you know, your pizza 
and then or maybe like a tuna sandwich and, and plus another piece of fruit. So for a young boy, I'm eating this is just a lunchtime. I'm just eating an enormous amount of calories and not burning those off throughout the day obviously leads to weight gain. And then after school, I'd pop past the, the milk bar again and then get a bag of lollies or a bag of chips or something like that. Get home and I was completely addicted to Milo at this stage. So I have a massive glass of Milo, at least half filled with just the chocolate milk powder and then top it up with milk and, and then have some chocolate cookies to dunk it in. That was my ritual every day from school. And then dinner would just be like I said before, like pasta, pizza, schnitzel, all that sort of stuff. And then, yeah, so repeating that cycle day in, day out was, yeah, clearly detrimental. It made me addicted to food, but also made me, you know, gain quite a considerable amount of weight through my teenage years. And I guess looking back now, I would often get insulted like and, and bullied for being overweight. But like I said before, I never really took it on board and I would always, you know, laugh it off. And then I got to the point I guess transi- transitioning into high school and then having anxiety playing a part into it and you, you start going out to parties, you start socialising more and you start, you know, getting attracted to females or males if you're if you're a, um, a female in that situation. And, and yeah, I think always being friend-zoned or, or only being seen as a friend from the females that I liked was a wake-up call for me that, you know, maybe you need to take a look into what you're eating, what you're putting into your mouth and start moving a little bit more. And like I mentioned before, always playing cricket. So at this point I was trialling for the Victorian teams and um, like I, I would always consider myself quite quite a talented young cricketer through those days and I was always thereabouts with the, the players in the team. And then the turning point for me was not making those teams and growing up, I always wanted to play professional cricket. It was a dream of mine and, and sometimes still creeps back in, but obviously life takes over when you get a certain age. And um, yeah, so wanted to play professional cricket. And, and at that point when I got, when I didn't make a team, it really cut deep and I went back to my local cricket coach and he was luckily a personal trainer and being involved in the health and fitness industry. I asked him, I'm like, mate, I, this is what's happened. I've just been cut from this team. Um, I want to play professional cricket and I think that maybe my weight is impairing that and my fitness level is impairing that. And he's like, okay, mate, we're going to work together. So he helped me through that and basically he just told me to cut my calories considerably. So instead of having the the big meal for lunch, swap that out with a tuna salad and, and instead of adding the milk, going past the canteen and the milk bar on the way to school, just have a piece of fruit instead and slowly transition foods out of out of my day and then slowly cut down my soft drink intake from every day to, you know, four, five, three, two, one days a week until, you know, you have that one glass a week and you actually savour it and um, until completely cutting soft drink out. So I think he helped me a a whole lot transition into um, a healthier lifestyle. And and I guess the way he did it looking back now was was such a sustainable way and it's, it's something that I aim to promote to my clients and the community through the things that I'm doing um, at the moment. Yeah, sustainable practices are so important when it comes to that. You know, we've definitely done the whole restriction thing that doesn't work and, you know, fad diets and all of the rest. And honestly, it just doesn't work, does it? Definitely. And that sort of, that segue into the fad diets took over my life for the next four or five years. It was just a very damaging cycle for me. And, and, throw it back a little bit take it back a little bit not throw it back it's not Thursday (laughs) (laughs) um 
just taking it back a little bit after I started cutting those colors I started to lose a little bit of weight and the beauty about when you're you know when you're so big or or, or so unhealthy and you make these healthy choices you start to see results very very quickly so I started to drop weight and at this stage I was about 100 kilos at 12 years old so very very overweight for my age and I reckon in the first two weeks, I lost about six or eight kilos, which was an amazing confidence booster. And I, I love the way I was feeling, you know, being a little bit lighter, being able to move a little bit faster. And and people were noticing and I, I got addicted to the, the attention. Oh, you're looking great. What are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And um, so I wanted to get more of that attention and I wanted to do more of those things. Then I, um, I guess I... I started looking more into the fitness side of things because I knew that I was making progress through my nutrition. I started looking more into the fitness side of things and started going for runs after school until I eventually got a gym membership. Um, and then started going to the gym. I had no idea what I was doing, but I would look around the room and see people doing like bicep curls. I'm like, oh, that looks cool. I might throw in that. And I think <laughs> that was sort of created some bad habits following people that might not have, have had an idea about what they're doing but it was a good segue for me without actually confronting them and asking them what they're doing so yeah I started moving a little bit more at the gym and I, I felt really good I started to um, make a little bit more progress I think I lost maybe another two or three kilos over the course of the next couple of months until finally I hit a plateau and that's basically what we call in the industry a halt in progress after making a considerable amount of progress so in order to get out of that plateau I didn't know this then, but I do know it now, obviously, being involved in the fitness industry is you obviously need to make further changes to what you're doing. So if you're doing the same thing day in, day out, there's going to come to a time where you're not going to see any more results and your body's just going to get used to what you're doing. So I didn't know that then. And um, I got a bit upset that I wasn't making any more results and I was doing all these things. I just didn't understand why. So then came in the whole fad diet scene and I know anyone involved in the in the fitness industry has been guilty of either partaking in a fad diet or thinking about going in to do a fad diet. And a fad diet is something that promises fast results with very, very restrictive, unsustainable um, connotations attached to it. So, for example, it could be like a low-carbohydrate diet and or you know, exercising eight, six days a week and, and trying to get seven days in a week, whatever it is. Um, so, yeah, I fell into that sort of that sort of routine and I went through that for four years, three to four years of just really restricting my calories back. Um, yeah, I was trying to tra- train seven days a week and, and my body was clearly depleted while mm-hmm. restricting calories. It just, yeah, it just wasn't right for me. And did a lot of uh, low carbohydrate, high protein, recycled through those things, having cheat days and, and that whole scene, I won't go into too much detail, but that whole scene, you know, caused me to develop a, a really bad relationship with food, Steph. Yeah, it sounds like it. And yeah, unfortunately, you had to go through that in order to get to where you are today. So I mean, that was a part of your process and now you know what is sustainable and what isn't. And what's important is that now you can teach that to your clients. Definitely. And I, I feel I really feel for the consumer these days because, you know, there's there's so much yelling and screaming in the fitness industry saying that or it might not even be the fitness industry speaking, it might be someone you know that's saying they got results from this one thing, telling you that, you know, you can 
get all these fast results without doing or changing things to your life or or drastically changing them for a certain period of time and you're getting all these results but then you know six seven eight weeks down the track you, you realize that that's really unsustainable and when life takes over and, and the motivation and the you know the excitement for lack of a better term about the new craze wears off it gets really hard and you and, and you can't you can't go through life that way so um, yeah, I, I think the marketing behind the, the fad diet companies is fantastic and, and credit to them, they, they're absolutely dominating the scene and, and I feel really bad for the consumer because there's not enough correct information out there for them to be able to make sustainable habits. Yeah, I know. And I think a lot of the people listening today are probably have experienced fad diets. They've done it, done a few probably, and you know, are probably sitting in a situation like you just said that they're back where they started because it wasn't sustainable. And I'm curious if you'd help us sort of get to this point where you can tell us where you went from there. So after that, um, I won't dive into the whole four-year course because we'll be here for three hours, Steph. But through that four-year <laughs> period, I was recycling through a lot of fad diets. And then there was this one thing that really stood out to me and, and a lot of fit, people in the fitness industry, personal trainers, you know, health coaches, blah, 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 were promoting a thing called calorie counting. And I thought it was fantastic. They were promoting that you could eat what you wanted as long as it was in your daily budget. So for people that don't know much about calorie counting, we all have a basal metabolic rate, which is the amount of calories that your body burns without actually doing anything. So you could be sitting down watching Netflix all day and your body still requires energy basically from your, you know, the systems in your body moving around and working. So um, we all have that sort of, that basal metabolic rate. And then after that, we factor in our lifestyle factors. So if you're very active, your calorie intake will go down. If you're slightly less active, your calorie intake or calorie requirements will um, be lower than someone who is highly active. So, yeah, calorie counting is precisely measuring how many calories you're putting into your body, and, and calories are made up of macronutrients, so your carbohydrates, your fats, your proteins, which are in all foods. So, yeah, pretty much really tracking tracking your foods. And then I did that for for probably close to two years, I think, and and I thought it was fantastic at the start. I, I was still making – I was – started to get out of that plateau, I was making making progress and still enjoying, you know, the foods that I wanted um, on a weekend. And then it sort of spiraled out of control and I got really obsessed with with foods in that um, in that place and, and people would often cook meals for me and, and I'd go over to, you know, a friend's house for dinner and I'd sit there at the stove tracking my macros or and trying to ask them what ingredients they put in the meal so I could track it and precisely hit you know my daily intake and and I think one thing that calorie intake calorie counting served for me was it enabled me to understand what calories are in what sort of foods so for example now I know how to measure a tablespoon of peanut butter and how many calories are in a peanut butter a tablespoon of peanut butter before actually loading four or five tablespoons on um but it also caused me to develop a really unhealthy unsustainable relationship with food as i mentioned before i was going over to people's houses and and sitting at the stove and and you know asking their parents what they've put in the meal like it's just ridiculous when you look back and and think about it now and i think life's way 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 too short to be tracking your macros to an exact day and don't get me wrong I do think that calorie counting does serve a fantastic purpose specifically if you're an athlete or you have um, performance goals that you have a, a date by for example like weightlifters need to be under a certain amount of 
uh, a certain weight to be able to partake in their weight category and boxes and, and whatnot. And I do think it serves a great purpose for people starting off in the fitness industry to understand what calories mean, what's foods. But I think that it should only be done for a short period of time because you you then get attached to that and you look back on that and, and think it's you know set in stone that you have to specifically hit your daily intake each and every day and it, and it can cause a lot of detrimental you know effects mentally and, and develop some really unhealthy unsustainable ways of eating absolutely it can i definitely am not an advocate for calorie counting i do agree it does serve its place but i think yeah definitely small amount of time to learn what you're doing and then you can move on from that and just sort of live a little bit more flexibly I'm curious to find out how calorie counting was affecting your social relationships. Yeah, so I saw that's a really good question, Steph. I sort of touched on that before as well, like um, when I would go over to someone's house and, and sit at the stove and ask their parents what they've put into into the meal, and um, <laughs> they would often look at me like, "Who are you? What are you doing here?" You know, um, and then I'd have to go through this whole process of explaining that I'm right into health and fitness, blah blah blah. Um, and I think it really did affect my social situation. I would often scan the menu of what we're going to have the night before if I was going out for dinner or or have to plan in advance what I'm going to eat on that specific day and how much to put aside for me. So I think it really caused me to become obsessive with food. And if I couldn't find anything on the menu that would, you know, fit my daily calorie intake, I would ask them to just give me a few things off the sides menus just so I could make up, um, make up my calories. And I think that sort of took away from the whole reason behind going out for dinner or going out for coffee or anything like that. It's to be social. It's not to go there and, and really enjoy the food. It's to go there and, and socialise with the friends. And, and for me, I was just so obsessed with reaching my goals and hitting my calorie intake. I sort of put that to the back burner and would, you know, be, be really worried about what I was going to eat instead of enjoying the company of my friends. Yeah, it just sounds like you were a little bit insecure about how you looked and obviously we're quite unsure of yourself at this point. Yeah, definitely, Steph, 100%. And, you know, throughout that two years that I was calorie counting, there were ups and downs and, and I guess I was sort of adopting my old way of eating as well where I would have one cheat day a week and I would, um, like, not track calories and and through that day, I would eat anything and everything. And it was often really, really unhealthy foods. I'd wake up in the morning and I'd have an ice cream cookie sandwich for breakfast and then like burger and chips for lunch. And I was really trying to fuel my body with all the unhealthy foods because I was craving them throughout the week, but I was depleting my body of them. So I wasn't giving them to to myself throughout the week. So then come my untracked day or my cheat day, for lack of a better term, then I would just indulge in those and, and really, really make sure I'd got enough in so I could get me through to the next Saturday night, um, which looking back now is just a ludicrous way of thinking and and obviously no better now to, you know, your cravings are happening for a reason. So fulfilling those cravings is, is such an important thing, but understanding portion control is such a, it's an even bigger thing. And yeah, I think that really played a, a pivotal role in, in my transition as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that binge and restrict nature is also something that a lot of females will be a, a little bit, 
surprised to hear coming from a male, I think. And I think it's about time that a male is talking about this sort of stuff because it's not just females that have that relationship to food, that it's literally everybody. Yeah, definitely. And and food is so addictive and the pleasure that we get from, you know, eating those, the foods that we love is it's amazing and and we crave that that emotion after we're eating that and I think in terms of going forward and and addressing those cravings we often associate our emotions to a specific food and and think about how we're feeling in that specific moment while we're eating that but then two three hours later we don't connect our emotions or how we're feeling to what we just ate so I think in terms of breaking the cravings and, and you know, adapting new cravings for for lack of a better term as well is to really connect with how you're feeling post-consuming those types of foods and, and address those emotions and those feelings. Because often, you know, once you have a, a big heavy meal or, or like a big bowl of ice cream, you feel really sluggish three, four hours later. So, and we don't often connect that to, to what we've just consumed. So in terms of of um, breaking the shackles and, and addressing our, our um, restrictive nature is really connected with how we're feeling post-binge and then, yeah, move forward from that. That's amazing advice, Matt, and thank you for sharing that with the listeners. And I would like you to sort of tell us what was the turning point in breaking you out of that? Yeah, the turning point for me was quite interesting. Uh, like like I mentioned before, there was a lot of failed attempts trying to get off calorie counting, but because I'd done it for so long, I would always just fall back into that habit. And and that my mindset was so restrictive at this stage that I um I would always fall back into that restrictive nature. There was a lot of you know guilted training sessions after my binge after the Saturday night and. And there was a lot of nights where I'd stand at the freezer eating ice cream out of the tub while feeling sorry for myself and not even enjoying it, just eating ice cream out of the tub and resenting what I'm doing instead of actually enjoying the process. And and I will add this point in before I go any further that, you know, if you're doing something and you're resenting what you're doing, continue to do it and not enjoy it, what, what's the point of doing it in the first place? You know, if you've made a decision that you're going to go and you're going to have a bowl of ice cream, why, why hate that decision? Why put a negative attachment to that decision. I think if we can start addressing um, our emotions in the moment and after the moment as well, then we're going to um, move forward and breaking the shackles for our binger. So if you've decided to go have a bowl of ice cream, enjoy it, man, and savour every taste and every mouthful and, and you'll find yourself really appreciating the flavours and, and you won't eat a whole tub and feel guilty of it the next day. You'll stop at three tablespoons and, and absolutely love it as opposed to eating the whole tub as I would before. So I think that's a, a really good bit of advice that helped me through it to not attach some negative emotions to the binge and, and feel guilty, address the situation and, and know what you're doing in the moment and say, okay, I'm binging at the moment and I'm absolutely loving it. So I'm not going to feel guilty about this and I'm going to put down the spoon and I'm going to move on. And I think that was a massive turning point for me to get over my binge. But the catalyst for me making cha- making changes to my calorie counting ways was um, I remember I was meal prepping with my girlfriend and we always used to meal prep on a Sunday. We'd chop our, chop our carrots and celery and, and cucumbers, blah, 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 for, for the week and put it in a little Tupperware containers. Um, and I was still weighing my cucumber and carrots and celery at this point, which is 
ridiculous. Cucumber is 90-something percent water containing zero to no, no calories. But I was so fixated on that number and hitting my calorie intake that, you know, I would stop at nothing. And the turning point for me, I, I dropped all my cucumber for the week and put it in my Tupperware container. My girlfriend reached over my shoulder and she she grabbed a cu- piece of cucumber after something I weighed and I turned around and I snapped. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, I'm sitting here, I'm doing all this stuff to try and make progress and you're just taking my, my weighed cucumber. How dare you, blah, blah, blah. And she just looked at me and she's like, whoa, it is cucumber, like 90% water and you're counting calories per whole cucumber. There's like eight calories and you're complaining over me taking a, a tiny little piece. And and I went back and I, I thought about it. I'm like, holy crap, like this is ridiculous. This is taking over my life and I need to make a change. And and instantly I deleted, I was using my fitness pal at that stage. I instantly deleted my fitness pal and and I said to myself and I said to my girlfriend, Rebecca, I'm like, look, I'm, I'm not going to calorie count anymore I'm really sorry for what you've had to put up with over the past two years and and like it just all come at me at once and and these emotions of how bad I felt for sitting at the stove at my friend's place and my girlfriend's place counting you know calories and putting that stress onto them and and it just hit me at once I'm like wow I do not want to be like that and that's not how I want to live my life and from that moment forward my fitness pal has not seen my phone applications I have not looked at it um before uh, looked at it after that and I feel amazing I, I can't tell you it was like the next day eating a meal eating my Bertram usually which without the correct grams of oats in there was just so <laughs> fulfilling and it felt like uh the shackles were off my shoulders and the weight was off my shoulders and I just felt amazing from that point on I'm so happy for you I've got a massive smile on my face right now and listening to you have that like aha moment and that turning point that yeah you just decided to go in such a healthier direction and you should be so proud of yourself for that thanks Steph and like to be perfectly honest I have never ever felt better with my decision and and sometimes I do like when you've adopted a restrictive mindset and and been so associated with the health and fitness industry and, and very um physique goal driven I think that it does creep back into your life at certain points and there's been times where you know I've wanted to count calories just to see where I'm at and I've tried to make excuses to myself to to download the app again I want to see how I'm feeling blah 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 and then I think back to how free I'm feeling and and how amazing I'm feeling not having a number associated with what I'm eating and and it just goes out the window again and I absolutely love this way of life and I'm really, really grateful that I went on this journey over the over five, six years. And I got in the end I got down from hundred kilos to seventy-nine kilos. I lost all all of that weight through I'm not gonna say it was all rainbows and butterflies because it wasn't. It was a lot of fad diets and a lot of um calorie counting and restrictive nights, binge eating and overtraining and and a long, long journey. But I'm so proud that on the other end I can come out and over that five years, I've now developed a, a sustainable routine and, and some balance with my life. And I, I now go out and and really enjoy the social aspects that I was putting on hold before when I was um, when I was counting calories. So, yeah, that whole journey is as 
saved my life and I'm really grateful that I was, you know, to experience those up, ups and downs. And throughout the whole period, people were telling me, like, what are you doing? Like, this is not sustainable. But when, you're, when you've got tunnel vision and you're so goal-orientated, you you don't see that and you don't hear what people are saying. And and I think that wake-up call for me for calorie counting, that's when what everyone was saying to me really made sense. And I'm just like, wow, that's, that's a turning point for me. And then, yeah, I just want to be – have more balance and, and sustainability in my life. Hmm. I'm curious to know whether or not you think that the calorie counting was perhaps like a coping mechanism in your life. That's a really, really deep question, Steph. I've never been asked something like that before, but I do, looking back now, I think that it definitely did play, play a big part of trying to be perfect and trying to hit those those numbers each and every day and making sure that I was doing 100% everything to reach my goal. Um, so, yeah, I really did think that that played a, played a or master part of my life that I wasn't really addressing before through, through calorie counting, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's just a different perspective when we think about the stressful things you were talking about before and how we eat and it's all to do with emotions and sometimes our binge eating or our restricting really does come down to, you know, us trying to deal with other things in our life. Yeah, definitely. And I think like bringing it back to the anxiety that I was experiencing through my early teenage years, I think that I would often look to food as a coping mechanism and and use that as my, you know, my safe, happy place. And yeah, that sort of um, spiraled into something bigger opposite end of the spectrum towards more healthy making more healthier choices if that makes sense so I was mm. making you know really unhealthy choices to cope before and then making really healthy choices but restrictively and unsustainably through my later teenage years to cope for for the other aspects in my life yeah it's it's amazing that you've been able to grow out of that and I'm aware that you follow a plant-based diet and I'm Really interested to learn when that came into your life. So uh, I'm a really big believer in, you know, when one door closes, another one opens. And when I stopped counting calories, there was a whole bloody window full of, a whole house full of windows that opened for me. So I just got a part-time job at uh, a cafe and and prior to my transition um, from calorie counting into non-calorie counting or eating normally, I um, <laughs> I was working at this cafe a couple of days a week and, and it wasn't plant-based at the time, but the owners were passionate vegans and um, often we'd get into conversation after shifts as I was sweeping the floor and they'd be like, hey, Matt, like, you know, what what are your thoughts on, on eating meat? And I'd, I'd say, oh, you know, it's a circle of life. Like they eat uh, other animals and we eat them like it's we're just the top of the food chain and and you know they were very 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 helpful uh in terms of my education about the whole situation and and they were like oh that's really interesting and and like I did believe that for a part of my life as well but did you ever stop to think that maybe it's not true and I'm like no I never really ever thought about that like I just thought you know circle of life this is what we've grown up eating there's people thriving off eating meat and dairy there's athletes doing it and they promote it in their world health organization so it must be healthy um 
anyway, and they told me to go away and do my own research. They told me to watch Cowspiracy on Netflix and all these, you know, other documentaries, Forks Over Knives, and I was blown away by how masked the whole industry is and how how what we perceive to be healthy is actually really detrimental to our health health and is the breeding ground for a lot of disease and and environmental issues that are going on in the world today so that completely opened my eyes and I took a 180 I completely changed my diet went plant-based instantly pretty much over a course of two weeks and and told everyone and everyone that I was doing this and and everyone was on board luckily I had a my family were very supportive in my decision and through my calorie counting ways I already knew how to cook for myself so it wasn't a real issue for them I just cooked my own meals anyway so now I was just cooking my own meals but they were plant-based through that it started off amazing like I, I felt really good but again when you know life takes over and, and that uh like we we're talking about before the excitement of something new wears off it gets quite difficult and and other life factors take over like you get busy you have a big day at work you can't be bothered cooking so I was often fueling my days with a lot of processed vegan foods like yeah Lenny and Larry's protein cookies and a lot of protein bars that were vegan and I thought oh they're vegan they must be healthy I was eating a lot of corn chips and dips and, and not really excuse me fueling my body with whole foods so I got really sick at this point in time I was still trying to get to the gym probably six days a week I it's, I will mention this, my eating habits changed, but my exercise habits didn't change until much later on in my journey. So I was still trying to keep up my obsessive exercise habits throughout the day. And, and I, I got really burnt out. I just wasn't feeling my body correctly. Um, and anyone that does transition from a plant-based diet, from eating you know, an animal-based diet, an animal-based diet contains far more calories than what a plant-based diet does. So I was consuming less calories than what I was before, but still trying to train as much as I was as well. So it really just wasn't working out for me. And then I got really burnt out. And at that point in time, I reverted back to what I knew and what I knew was was eating animal products. So I went back and, and didn't take a calorie counting ways, but I would still eat the foods that I was on um, was consuming while I was counting calories. So at that point, it was like your chicken breast, brown rice and broccoli, and I was consuming those, and, and I instantly felt better. And I dug deeper, and I thought, maybe it's not the foods, maybe it's the amount of calories that I'm consuming. Over that point in time, I, I did my own research. I asked a lot of people. I got into conversation with the owners of the cafe, and, and they were super helpful. Again, I must admit, they helped me through the whole journey. And then I educated myself on what a sustainable whole foods plant-based diet looks like. And then that was when I started slowly transitioning foods out of my diet. After I educated myself on replacement for chicken breast with tofu, then I started having my tofu, my brown rice and my broccoli. And then I would still have eggs in the morning. I started realizing that, you know, I can still make eggs but with tofu so I started making tofu scramble and replacing those things and then instead of I started adding beans to my tofu rice and broccoli and started incorporating a whole whole foods approach but having it plant-based and then that's when I started thriving and that's when I started feeling amazing through my workouts throughout the day I started to have enough energy to you know get through the day let alone through my workouts so um I think, you know, a whole foods plant-based diet is optimal for health. And, and these days we often associate a vegan diet with being healthy, but that's not the case because a vegan diet can 
can be almost anything. Like I said, chips and, and Coke are, are considered vegan because they don't have any animal products, but they're not necessarily healthy. And they're, in terms of, um, in terms of longevity, for, longevity from a health perspective, it's definitely not doing us any favours, that's for sure. No, not at all. And definitely the whole foods, plant-based, you know, direction is where you want to be and what you want to be eating. But you're right, it is actually really hard to learn how to do that in the beginning. And obviously, the easiest way to transition into a vegan or plant-based diet is to probably start replicating the things that you once knew on your meat-based diet and then make them vegan. And then slowly you can change that, you know, fake meat into lentils. And it's just about starting somewhere. I 100% agree. And I think that with people that are inquisitive about, you know, a plant-based diet and, and ask me how I'm feeling and how that how my transition was, I always tell them to take a sustainable approach and, and a process of elimination by, you know, swapping the tofu for the chicken or the beans for the chicken like I did and, and not have to go through that whole cycle of of being depleted and not giving your body enough nutrients. But learning along the way because I think if we're educating ourselves on the way and learning things on the way we're more likely to to stick to it than you know going gung-ho and and dropping everything and and don't get me wrong that works for some people and, and fantastic a credit to them that can do that but I think for the majority of the population uh process of elimination definitely works works best mm. How was the reaction to the you know the other people in the gym working out with you when you went plant-based um, I sort of didn't really tell too many people that I was plant-based at the beginning. So my training didn't really impact on that at all. I noticed in myself that I was seeing an amazing display of benefits in terms of my recovery from sessions and, and my endurance through sessions as well. So, you know, I'd be, I'd still be fatigued throughout the, through the working sets, but instead of taking four or five minutes to recover, I would now be recovering in two, three minutes and be ready to go for that next set. So throughout the duration of the workout, I was recovering a lot faster and then I was sleeping a lot better, which is so important and so restorative. And I think we neglect that as a society these days with all our gadgets and and whatnot, but that's a different story. And I think when I started sleeping better, it, it definitely painted a whole picture of what a holistic lifestyle should look like and and it didn't really it sort of confirmed the fact that it's not just your your um nutrition or your exercise it's a whole display of of holistic things that make up who you are and and make up a healthy individual absolutely it really is just like a whole circle of mindfulness and movement and what we put into our body and Matt, were you in the fitness industry working as a personal trainer at this stage? Yeah, so while I was count- counting calories for my second year of doing that, so I'd done a year while I was studying my Cert 3 and 4 in fitness, and then um, for my first year in the industry, I was still counting calories. And, and yes, yeah, so I was a personal trainer throughout this whole transition, and I started up my, um, my business called Euphoria Health and Active Living um, through this process. And it's gone through some ebbs and flows in terms of the advice I've been giving my clients um, about, you know, sustainability and, and what to fuel their body with based on what I've done. And, and yeah, they've been amazing in, in terms of taking on the advice I've <laughs> given them. And I know, you know, <laughs> I've admitted that I was wrong and, and the things that I was, or not wrong, the things that I was 
giving to the advice that I was giving to them at the time really didn't apply to them. And I was sort of taking a very personalized approach to the advice that I was giving to them. But um, yeah, they've been amazing in terms of taking on advice and, and applying it to their own lifestyle. Yeah, that's awesome. And if you could give me a blanket statement, pretending that I'm one of your clients right now, what, what would you say with everything that you've learned? What's the best way for me to tackle my new fitness journey? So it's an oldie, but it's a goodie and it's slow and steady wins the race. And I think that if you can make slow, sustainable changes over the course of 12 months and and see results over the duration of 12 months as opposed to making restrictive, unsustainable changes and seeing those exact results in three months, I think, and then reverting back to what you were already doing prior to those three months, I think that's the... um, that's the way to go. Sustainability is key and trying to make habits that last a lifetime should be our main goal and, and not let fitness or or what we're putting into our mouth dictate the experiences we have in, in life because I think there's far greater things to life than wor- worrying about how many calories are in a tablespoon of peanut butter. <laughs> Absolutely. I could not agree more with you. And what is it that you do over at Euphoria Health? So Euphoria Health and Active Living is like my little child. Um, basically, <laughs> like I mentioned before, run group fitness classes and personal training um, with that. And basically my whole outlook on on my fitness is and the fitness that I give to my clients is about education. I try and educate my clients through each and every session we have, whether it's about, you know, how to recover better or how to lift more weights in the gym or how to be able to run that extra mile or be able to make changes to their nutrition sustainably. I think education is the main factor for me. And if I can get my clients learning something new each and every session, I think that I've definitely ticked the ticked box um, for the goals that I've set myself. Basically, I aim to just promote sustainability in everything that we do throughout our lives, whether that's getting up to go to work or, or sustainability through our exercise, exercise regimes or sustainability through a solid sleep routine. I think that if we can create habits that can last a lifetime, then we're going to be happier, healthier individuals that can do things for a far greater time with less stress um, for our whole life. I love all of that. And it sounds to me like you've learnt so much over, you know, that six-year period and, you know, I'm really curious to learn is that where and what inspired the Daily Dose of Euphoria podcast? So, yeah, the podcast was something that I'd never thought I'd be doing in my whole wildest dreams. I um, actually wanted to write a book about my journey and, and help people understand that they can make, you know, sustainable habits and and enjoy the process while they're doing it but I wanted to write a book and I remember talking to my mentor about it and he was actually my year 11 and 12 teacher and we're really good mates at the moment and and he's like to me I love the idea of of you writing a book mate but in terms of your reach I don't think that you've got that many people following your journey and and the impact that you're going to make on people isn't going to be as great as what it could be in a few years he's like I run a podcast. I've done 80 episodes. Why don't you give it a shot? I'm like, oh, you know, I never really thought about doing a podcast before. And I was a bit nervous about putting myself out there and, and listening to my voice over and over again. But anyway, went over to his house literally the next week. He helped me set up the podcast, done all the graphics for me, gave me a microphone and, and 
yeah, literally I was doing podcasts just like that. So I, I started interviewing people through the connections that I'd made in the industry, uh, through my clients, friends of friends. Um, I was also working at Lululemon, which is a, a company, um, an activewear company basically promoting holistic changes through exercise and movement, but they do that through the power of selling activewear. Um, so the connections I made through that company, and yeah, after that, I literally started a podcast. And this has been one of the most rewarding things that I've ever done, being able to connect with people from all around the globe and and listen to their stories has just been incredible. Like, Steph, I wouldn't have met you if, if you know, I didn't have the podcast and, and didn't find out about your podcast as well. And, and the connections that I've made have just been so rewarding and, and letting everybody tell their story. Cause I think it's all good and well hearing um, stories from athletes and, and from medical professionals and, and high profile people, whatever they may be. I think that's fantastic to hear their stories, but the everyday Joe Blow still has a fantastic story. And I guess that's what I aim to promote. It's just, let people know that you know the person sitting next to you has an amazing story as well so why not give them the space to share that and create a connection in the process and and get their name out from small businesses to you know people with just a cool story that have had a traumatic thing in their life I think it's a it's a great tool um to be able to connect and and educate yourself on absolutely and I couldn't agree more and it's definitely the mission behind my podcast as well I'm I'm curious how many episodes have you done now so coming up to episode 50 this week, actually, which is, a, which is pretty wow. amazing. I never thought that I'd be, get that many episodes. I was sick of my own voice after editing three podcasts. So I don't know how you guys are listening <laughs> to it for 50 episodes now. But, yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful for, you know, the community, um, my listeners as well. It's just been amazing. And, and the feedback that I've gotten from the guests that I've had on the show and, and from the guests themselves being able to share their story on the show is just so incredible and, and that's what keeps me you know going back and, and wanting to do it and sometimes you know it gets a bit overwhelming I must admit trying to get the podcast up and commit to my weekly episode output that I've committed to but after hearing comments like oh you're doing amazing things or thank you so much for the opportunity like I really appreciate it. I never would have had that opportunity to share my story it just keeps me going back for more and that's what you know affirms my decision to to start the podcast and, and I absolutely love it don't regret a thing that's super powerful and I'm really happy for you I really want to know like what are some of the most pivotal things you've learned from your guests like are there things that you remember from certain guests that go oh and I'm going to adapt that to my life and you're just a different person now because of it? There's a million and one different things that I've learned from, from my guests and I learn something from everyone that comes on the show about different pillars or, or something that they've done in their life. But the one main thing that stands out for me is how to actually listen with intent and really be captivated by someone's story or what they're saying. And I think... Often these days we, we don't listen properly and we don't truly give the person that we're communicating with 110% of our attention and, and really take on board what they're saying. So hosting the show has taught me to listen attentively and, and be able to to recall things that they're saying and um, and really take on board the, their story and, and, you know, tips that they may have for, for the listeners. Some, other things that um, I guess it's been so rewarding, like I said before, is the connection. Like I've connected with people from all around the globe, from 
you know, doctors over in Queensland to um, authors in Canada. Like, it's just been incredible listening to their story and and the hardships and their successes through that period of time. It's just been so fulfilling and really, really amazing. And I often think back to sometimes when there's a difficult period in my life or, or there's something that's not going wrong, I just think about the resilience that I've learned from from guests on my show and I'm just like wow like this is nothing compared to what they're doing so stop complaining and just get it done (laughs) just a little bit of perspective sometimes to put you back into into your place (laughs) yeah definitely Matt that's amazing and your podcast is incredible I've listened to so many episodes now and each time you learn something different from you know a completely different person they're not all talking about the same thing you know there's a, a big array of things and would you recommend to the listeners, I know I've had a lot of feedback recently, lots of people wanting to get into podcasting. Would you recommend other people to get into it? Yeah, thanks so much, Steph. And I will just add before I answer your question that you're doing incredible things as well, providing a platform of education and, and a platform for people to be able to share their stories. So incredible. And, and I have listened to a few of your episodes as well. So you're doing great things and keep up the good work. In terms of advice for people out there that are wanting to start a podcast, I think it's it's such a great time to be able to get your voice out there and share your story and and be be that platform to pe- for people to share their stories as well. We're in a day and age where we can't just do one thing at a time. We have to do six, seven different things at a time. And the great thing about podcasts is that it's an educational tool where we can still do other things at the time. So you often see people putting their headphones in, going for a run and listening to a podcast and they're still educating themselves. Or if you're washing the dishes or cooking dinner, they've got a podcast in the background and they're, they're having aha moments while they're doing other things. So I think it's such a important resource in, tom- in terms of keeping up with technology and the, the modern era of education. So I think, yeah, definitely go out and do it. And you're going to get sick of your own voice at the start of it. I know editing my podcast, so I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe I sound like that. There's no way I'm releasing that. But, you know, <laughs> with practice, you, you get better at communicating and, and your questions get better and, and you just accept that, you know, that's your voice, so roll with it. So, yeah, definitely get out and do it. And if you have any, you know, questions about starting up a podcast or where to even begin, I'm more than happy to help anyone through so they can shoot me a message and, and I'm sure you'll help them through that as well, Steph. Yeah, beautiful and amazing tips there. And you are definitely someone, you are a resource in this industry now for lots of people listening to contact you and reach out to you and ask you advice about lots of things. And I want to ask you a few tips on something else. And I was wondering what the three biggest things in your life that you do for self-care are. So this is an area in my life that's just crept in recently, actually. So probably in the past, you know, year yeah, 15 months I've started focusing on myself. I always thought, you know, you just go through the routine and and it's normal to feel the way you are, but we can actually change the way we're feeling by taking care of ourselves. And uh, I remember doing a podcast early, I think it was episode five, um, my guest was telling me that there's a reason why aeroplanes tell you to put your own mask on first before, your own oxygen mask on first before helping others. And and she's like, if you can apply that to your everyday life, then, you know, you're definitely going to be able to give people your 100%. And I think that just opened my eyes in terms of self-care. And, and it's not selfish to look after yourself. It's actually quite the opposite because then you're giving your whole self to someone else to be able to help themselves. And I think that's really important in 
my industry as well. Um, being a personal trainer, I'm sure everyone knows that you're working when other people aren't. So the hours are quite unsustainable doing them long term, getting up early, working late at night. So self-care has changed my life in terms of in terms of that. So getting into the nitty gritty stuff, the um, my self-care routine, it's quite precise, consists of a morning routine. So I start my day in the exact same way every morning. Well, I'm not perfect at it, but like I, I do try and, and get this done most days. Um, basically, I put my phone on the other side of the room before I go to bed with my alarm set. So I physically have to get up out of bed and turn my alarm off. I, I thought, you know, once we're waking up, the first when our alarm goes off and we have to wake up the first emotion that runs through our brain no matter what time it is is oh my god do I have to get out of bed regardless if it's 10 a.m or 5 a.m so I thought if I just get out of bed on the first alarm then and turn my phone off then I'm up and at them already so there's no way that I'm going back to bed after that I look myself in the mirror and give myself a full body shake to get my lymphatic system flowing and, and, you know, wake myself up quite literally. From then I go into my bathroom and turn on the water as cold as possible. And I'm never, ever enjoying this process, but I'm getting better uh, and wash my face with cold water. And that is just like a punch in the face. Literally. It is so, so cold, but it gets me alert and I don't rely on stimulants in the morning to wake me up because the cold water hitting my face and hitting my skin really wakes me up. After that, I'll, you know, brush my teeth and get dressed and then get ready to um, to attack my day. And I think setting the tone for myself from the get-go where my alarm goes off at, you know, sometimes it's quarter past four in the morning and setting the tone then and telling myself that I'm not going to put my day on snooze has been a massive win for me and starting my day off on the right foot. We... I often hear from a lot of people that they set 10, 12 alarms in the morning at two-minute spaces apart. Like, it's really doing you absolutely no good. For starters, you're falling back into that first sleep cycle routine, so you're going to feel worse when that alarm goes off the next time. Secondly, you're also going to be starting your day off with a fright. You know, when once you're in a sleep and you hear a sound, you wake up in a panic, and, and it's just that release of cortisol from the get-go is not great. Yeah, so like I make sure that I'm fueling my body with whole foods. Um, I get my movement in throughout the day, whether that's going to the gym or, or going for a walk or, you know, um, moving my body in different ways. I think one thing that's very, very underrated is touch and, and like feeling affection from our animals or from our partners. I really think that in terms of my self-care, touch has been such a pivotal part. And I've just recently got myself a little puppy. My uh, mum moved up to Rosebud and she took the dogs with her, which I was quite devastated about because they were my partners in crime. But I um, got myself a little puppy about four months ago. And every morning I, I pat his head really meaningfully and I'm really grateful that he's in my life. And it's a bit corny, it's a bit cliche, but having that touch and and affection from an animal or from your loved one or from a partner has been huge in terms of my self-care and it really affirms me being grateful for the things that are in my life so that's also an area of self-care that I that I think is very underrated and and we often look past it a lot in in terms of um of meaningful connection and, and affection as well and lastly I think it's often gaining a lot of momentum as well and, and it's really thrown around this word but meditation is absolute key for me and and um 
when I first got into this realm of meditation and yoga, I often thought that yoga and meditation was done on a mat for 45 minutes and you're in these strange poses and it's all about, you know, getting a sweat on and being uncomfortable stretching. <laughs> but meditation for me is, is now a practical setting that I use in all different aspects of my life. So meditation is not, for me, sitting on a mat for 45 minutes and being in complete silence. That serves a purpose in some pillars of my life when I'm trying to get to sleep sometimes I'll just take 10 minutes for myself and just control my breath but in other aspects of my life practical ways when I'm stuck in traffic and I'm thinking about getting on that horn and getting frustrated the person that doesn't know how to drive in front of me I just bring it right back and connect to my breath and and think about my breathing and that's meditation for me and that's mindfulness and and yoga in a practical setting and I think in terms of the society we're living in, we don't, well, we do have the time, but we don't have the time at the same time to be sitting down and meditating for 30, 40 minutes on a mat. So if we can adopt it into a practical setting before we're going into a job interview, before we get on the horn or stick our head out the window and abuse the person in front of us in the in the car park because they took your spot, like connect with your breath and, and really it, it grounds you and it really makes you see a bigger picture that, you know, that's not important at this point in time. And and that's been an absolute lifesaver for me. And breathing, again, I'll link it back to one of my podcast guests early days, I think it was episode three. His name was Tyson. And he told me, he's like, we breathe every second of every day involuntarily. So why don't we just start thinking about it? And I'm just like, wow, like we do. We do. So if we start thinking about our breath and, and how restorative it can be and, and what it does for our body, then I think that's the far, by far the greatest thing that you can do for yourself in terms of self-care. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing those. That's, yeah, people aren't placing enough value on self-care and we are guilty of it. And I know that it takes something dramatic sometimes to realise you do have to put yourself first. But you should be really proud that you're doing that. And I know you're probably out there sharing that with your clients and changing their lives. And I know that's exactly what you're doing in the podcast as well. So just want to say a really, really good job, Matt. Thanks, Steph. And like, by no means am I the perfect person. Sometimes I, I don't wash my face with cold water because it's minus two degrees outside. It's the last thing I want to do. But, you know, I think in life, everything's a practice and we're always learning and, and, I think if I can do that most days as opposed to every day, then I'm moving forward and, and you know, life happens. So just go with the flow. That's my my little motto. Definitely. It's been really awesome having you here with me today. And before we wrap things up, I, I want to ask you if there's anything else that you want to share with the listeners perhaps or maybe something that you think that we didn't cover today. Nah, Steph, it's been an absolute pleasure being on your podcast. Like I said before, you're doing great things and and I really appreciate, you know, you having me on the show and sharing my story. In terms of um, anything we've missed, no, we've definitely covered it all and I just want to, you know, get the message out to people that slow progress is the far best way that you can do, whether that's progress in, in whatever pillar it is in your life. But for me, my you know specialty is health and fitness so slow progress with your health and fitness is is the best thing that you can do in terms of sustainable habits and creating them that last a lifetime and being able to do the things that we love doing without guilt or without regret is the best thing that we can do and um 
I, I often look back and, and I think now in terms of my goals and, and how I want to approach my health and fitness, it's it's gone from my physique goals, which I had through my early teenagers, and and I've started wanting to be healthier and wanting to move better. And I think since I've narrowed my focus into just being healthier and, and wanting to move better and, and be better or be faster, I think that's it's changed my whole outlook on life and it's I will touch back into the motivation that I said before my motivation it just doesn't stop now with that like I have days where I don't want to do stuff but in a big picture my motivation throughout the week doesn't stop and I always always want to do the things that I'm doing to reach my goals because I've made my goals wider instead of you know narrower in terms of like looking better I want to feel better and I know there's so many variables that control that so I think you know if I'm not nailing one thing whether it's going to the gym I'm still you know doing my two minute breathing meditation so I'm feeling better so my my um my weekly progress is not deemed by if I've gone to the gym or if I've you know eaten that last florid of broccoli it's it's far greater (laughs) than that Thank you so much for that insight into your life and I know that a lot of the listeners today will have taken so much from this conversation and will be able to adapt that to their lives and hopefully have learnt so much from it and where can they find you on social media if they do want to connect? Thanks so much Steph, I've had an absolute blast, it's been different being on the other end of the um, the microphone but I've really enjoyed it. Um, in terms of contact, I'm on social media all over the place i'm on instagram at euphoria health um euphoria spelled a bit differently it's y-o-u the number four i-a and then health um the same for facebook and then yes that's probably the easiest way to contact me and if you have any questions about anything you just want to connect or you just want to say good day don't be don't be shy to shoot me a message i'm more than happy to you know to help people through or have conversations connect with different people from all walks of life so yeah More people need to be like you, Matt. Thank you so much for being here today and for your vulnerability. Thanks so much, Steph. I've had an absolute blast. Appreciate it. So, guys, there you have it. Matt's incredible story to where he is today. And I think so many parts of his story are so relatable to so many of us. And this episode offers up so many tips and solutions to help get you on track and to get into that sustainable fit and healthy lifestyle that we all crave and that we all need. I want to thank Matt so much for coming on the podcast today and if you want to hear more from him head over and find his podcast a weekly dose of euphoria. It is honestly amazing and guys If you've been enjoying my episodes, then make sure you head over and hit that subscribe button and leave me a little review. For now, I hope you guys have the most incredible week and I will see you all in my next episode.